Rush. They came from the great white north and were unlike any band that has come before or since. Guitarist Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee. In 1968, we formed the band. Getty and I met in high school, I guess a year before, and we'd uh, jam at his place mostly or, or at my place. But um, we had a common love and passion for music and for a particular kind of music and bands of that era. And, of course, like a million other 15-year-old kids in a basement with a bass guitar and electric guitar, you want to be Eric Clapton or Jack Bruce or, or one of these people. And got a, a couple of gigs, and, and that turned into kind of a regular gig at a drop-in center, and it just sort of grew from there. I, I do remember that we started writing our own original material very early on, within a couple of months of, of the band beginning, and that was always a, an important part of what we did. And in fact, we were one of the few bands that played original material, playing the high school dances, the pre-bar kind of gigs. And, of course, that had its own set of problems. <laughs> you know, you play in a high school dance, they want to hear all the hits. And uh, instead, we were playing 20-minute blues songs and things like that. Yeah, and a lot of our original material back there was probably pretty lousy. So, but we stuck to our guns. One member who didn't stick to his guns was original drummer John Rutsey, who left the band in July of 74. We interviewed a few people, but I do remember when Neil showed up, he was this tall, gangly, skinny guy with this little tiny set of Rogers drums. And, you know, he was setting up his drums, and, you know, Getty and I had waist-length hair and velvet pants and platform shoes, and we were from Toronto, and we were extremely cool. And he was from a little town an hour away with a short haircut because he was working for his dad in the farm equipment business. And he looked very nerdy and thought, you know, this guy does not look cool enough to be in our band. This is, I don't know if this is going to work out. And then, of course, he started playing his drums and we were both completely blown away. So when Neil came in, of course, you know, he was an incredibly adept drummer. And uh, he kind of confirmed our desire to add more intricacy to what we were doing so that was a natural kind of connection there as musicians we were on tour within i think a few weeks of him joining the band we were touring in america and we were still really getting to know each other and in the area of lyric writing for example was not something i ever felt 100 percent comfortable doing and i did out of necessity more than desire and alex and i noticed how much neil read and we would talk to each other and go, hey, maybe this guy can write lyrics. He's pretty articulate. I remember we were on a drive and we suggested to him, hey, you ever thought of writing lyrics? And he was kind of surprised and said, no, but I'll give it a whirl. And he did. And uh, we were impressed. The guy could speak English. He could write pretty well. And he had some interesting ideas. It began a series of conversations about different sorts of things and different kinds of lyrics that has continued our entire career because he thought about things that other musicians and other people we hung out with at that time didn't think about, didn't talk about overtly. You know, maybe you did think about politics or maybe you did think about philosophical subjects, but it wasn't something you brought into everyday conversation that often, you know. So he was a stimulating guy and uh, he became a catalytic effect on, on the way we think and the way we viewed uh, putting a musical entity together. The late lyricist and drummer, Neil Peart. All the first bands I played in played all the Whistle Pickett, James Brown, Otis Redding, and all that. So um, actually I've drawn upon that um, 
in my drumming a lot over the past few years as I'm constantly trying to find new directions to go, trying not to repeat myself. In, in some ways, sometimes you go back to things that you hastily moved through or over without examining or without developing properly. So I go back to some of our older records sometimes and find new ideas that I've forgotten about. Or going way back to my beginnings and saying, well, you know, what James Brown's drummer did in a 90s context can have a new um, a new approach, and Getty and I are both much busier than the average bass player and drummer, um, both individually and together. We do a lot more, and um, our sounds are very distinctive. Again, following upon the same thing, because we're active, we have a strong voice just on our instrument. So that, I think that sticks out, just the activity going on. And then Alex's sound and approach is unique, again, as a combination of uh, the effects that he uses and the way he approaches them and his style of playing. The chords that he chooses are unique. You know, we often describe uh, chords as being Alex chords. You know, there's a certain thing that he likes. And same for me. My style is based upon what I like. You know, what I like listening to is what I like to play. And when I put all those things together, they become my style as such but of course they're a combination of 100 other people's styles really and as a band that comes into our influences are very apparent and we've never shied away from them we draw upon everybody that we've ever liked and everybody that we like now and, and put them all in together and whatever's happening around us we respond to that too and, and always have so all of these things add up to it and of course Getty's voice on top of it all is very distinctive and you know all of that together I think adds up to um, perhaps a uniqueness Forty years ago, the band released their seventh studio album, Permanent Waves. It was an evolution in their sound that would carry Rush onto radio stations, playlists, and sold-out arena stages around the world. They've sold an estimated 45 million albums and counting worldwide, and awarded 24 gold, 14 platinum, and three multi-platinum albums. Rush has received seven Grammy nominations, and was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 94, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. In celebration of Permanent Wave's landmark birthday on May 29th, Rush, along with UME Mercury Anthem Label Group, released four distinct configurations. A super deluxe edition on both CD and vinyl with a 40-page book, a two-CD deluxe edition, a three-LP deluxe edition, and a deluxe digital version. Each of them feature the Abbey Road Studios 2015 remastered version of the original album, along with previously unreleased and newly restored live songs from three stops on the Permanent Wave's world tour of 1980 the Manchester Apollo in Manchester, England, the Hammersmith Odeon in London, England, and Keele Auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri. Over the next hour, 102.9 MGK will play you a bunch of music along with insights from Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and the late Neil Peart. Thanks for joining me. I'm Tony Harris. Welcome to Rush Permanent Wave's 40th Anniversary All Access.
Lines of the puppets were written on the sleepy wall Spirit of Radio, a combination of both the original hit and the previously unreleased live version in Manchester from their tour supporting the Permanent Waves album in 1980. Getty Lee. Yeah, we had tremendous success with uh, Permanent Waves and Spirit of Radio. Uh, we started getting a lot of airplay. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, we got so much airplay about Spirit of Radio, you know, because people thought it was a song about how great radio was and they never really listened to the lyrics and saw how it was a song about how great radio used to be and 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 how it was really a song lamenting the fact that we thought radio was was losing its originality and despite of that because i guess it had radio in the title they just took it at face value and the song got a tremendous amount of airplay and uh, really helped us out a lot in a kind of again a kind of a backwards way alex lifeson well, we'd sort of gone as far as we felt we could go with Hemispheres. I mean, that was the last record where we felt still at all comfortable doing a long album-side piece um, or a longer concept piece. With uh, Permanent Waves, we really wanted to be a little more economical with our songwriting. We wanted to pack in the same sort of dynamic that we would have in a song that was eight or nine minutes long, but in more of a four- or five-minute format. So it really got us thinking in a different direction and how we were writing and um, and really that, that album was that, that first step in that direction. Neil Peart. In discussing amongst ourselves what direction we wanted to go in the future, we realized that there was no point in getting into that grind again because we had really taken it as far as we could either compositionally or, or as musicians. So uh, we really decided to put aside considerations of length. In other words, when we write a song now, we have no idea how long it's going to be. You know, when I put together some lyrics, it's not necessarily a long or a short song, it's just a song, and then we start to work on it musically, and it's all just done to the integrity of itself. You know, we don't think, well, this should be a six-minute song or this should be a ten-minute song. But we have tried to be more concise, I think, for the reasons stated before, that uh, with all the experimentation that we've done before, we've put a lot of that behind us now, so we don't need to be quite so ornamental and quite so um, virtuoso, you know? We've just explored so much of that now that uh, we can use it more or less as, as something we draw from experience now rather than having to be the main thrust of what we do. We go by the strength of the idea, so a 10-minute song is a 10-minute song, but when we have a song that's four minutes or five minutes, by the same token, we're not going to say, well, this song is too short, people are, are going to think that we're being commercial. You know, you just can't think that way. It leads to too many confusing twists of the issue. The clouds prepare for battle Dark and moody silence 
clouds have the light of day obscured, looming low and ominous in twilight premature. Thunderheads are
Hi, this is Alex Lyson of Rush, and we'll be right back. We'd like to do something now that deals with uh, foreign matter. This is called A Passage to Bangkok. Thanks for rejoining Rush, Permanent Wave's 40th Anniversary All Access. I'm Tony Harris, and this is Classic Rock 102.9 MGK in Philadelphia. Before Permanent Waves, Rush did not get much radio airplay. The exception was Closer to the Heart from 1977's A Farewell to Kings, Getty Lee. 2112 opened a lot of doors for us accidentally in the sense that even though it was not really considered a very commercial album in terms of its structure being a sidelong concept, it had something about it that was vital and connected with people. And really, even though it didn't get a lot of airplay at the time, it created a whole new wave of fans for us. And that just encouraged us, you know, nothing like a little bit of success to fuel the fire. And that kind of led us into a period where we started spending more time playing in England and recording in England. And a lot of that English time and the people we worked with over there had an influence on our sound somewhat. And that led into Farewell to Kings and Close to Heart and that whole, you know, what I consider kind of our English period. But, uh, you know, we did these songs in the same way we did a lot of songs in the past, and I don't think at the time we had any great expectations of success from Closer to the Heart. You know, it was just another song that had kind of a different melodic beginning, and uh, we were trying to bring more acoustic and electric into the same song, those kind of textures. We were blending those textures, and Neil was experimenting with different kinds of percussion and stuff like that. But we've never been very good at predicting what material of our own is commercial or not commercial. I'm the man who holds tight places Must be the one to start To mold a new reality Closer to the heart Closer to the heart The blacksmith and the artist Reflected in their heart
recorded in Manchester in the UK during Rush's tour behind Permanent Waves, Closer to the Heart. You'll find that and 10 more previously unreleased live performances on the new 40th anniversary editions of Permanent Waves. After their first three studio albums, Rush had not achieved much commercial success. That led to the so-called experts at the record labels and others telling the band what they should do. Alex Lifeson. There was a great deal of pressure on us to smarten up, you know, and uh, and we kind of fought back. We decided that, well, you know, we're going to do it our way or else we'll go down in flames. But at least, you know, we've we've tried it our way. And uh, there was a great deal, as I said, passion and and. Um, and anger on that record, recording it, really fighting against the, the man, you know. Sticking it to the man. Really, you know, our first commercially successful record, and that, I think, bought our freedom. And we have never had any kind of pressure from management or, or the record company in, in the music that we make. You know, we're completely free of that, and, and we do what we believe is right for us. Neil Peart. There's such a big difference between being not successful and being a little bit successful. And it's much more than being a little bit successful and being really successful, you know, that doesn't really matter. The principle of that being that when we weren't successful at all, we were at the mercy of all kinds of pressure. I mean, we were forced to listen to all this ridiculous bad advice and all these people leaning on us and that. And as soon as 2112 came out and was moderately successful, it took all that pressure away. All of a sudden it was as if, well, we know what we're doing now. And, and those people saw fit to leave us alone. And, and from then on, we never, received even any hints on what direction we should take in the future. I mean, when we first started talking about making 2112, all we heard about was, well, the record company doesn't want a concept album. <laughs> oh, well, and we'll change our minds. <laughs> you know, that, that's basically what I'm getting down to. So the, the difference between prior to 2112 and after 2112 is enormous, but the difference between 2112 and now is not that great. Because once we had established our credibility with the business-minded people, we had proved that we did know what we were doing and our instincts were correct with the instincts of our audience and so on. That was the big step to me, you know, and, and once the, the further steps came along and where Permanent Waves became a very successful radio album and so on, that didn't mean near as much to us, you know, that was just like a, a long, slow progression and as we got better we were more well received, which was a really nice relationship to have and it's, it's easier to live with than the fact that, oh well, I put out this junk and people like it so they're stupid. <laughs> you know, we didn't have to feel that way because as we knew we were getting better and starting to know how to write songs and how to play better and so on. People started to like us more, but to me the real crux of it was that little bit of acceptance that just takes all the pressure off your back and all of a sudden all you have to worry about is your own pressure, you know, the internal pressure. We are secrets to each other Each one's life a novel No one else has read Even joined in bonds of love We link to one
Rush Permanent Waves 40th Anniversary Edition, Entre New, remastered to perfection. Here's the band's lyricist, Neil Peart. Yeah, I, I certainly do have things that I want to say and uh, feelings and thoughts that I, that I would like to convey to people, but at the same time, I don't consider them all important. They are there, and vocals really, yes, are sounds. It's an instrument, and it's a series of tonalities and consonants and vowels, which are important, and I give due care to that as well, and I work together with Getty a lot on the singability of lyrics and, and even working on my own, the quality of euphoniousness. They should sound nice and they should sing well. And uh, I know from listening to a, a thousand old love songs that lyrics can be um, irrelevant, really. But not if they're well crafted, though. If you look at all the standard songs of uh, the, of the 20s and 30s and that, and, and all the Sinatra standards and so on, they're beautifully crafted lyrics. And, and yes, they're simple love songs with not too much depth, and they are just given for the singer's voice to convey as an instrument. And even on that level, that's okay. And, and even on that level, I think it's important, and I do worry about those things. But I think about other things and worry about other things, so I have the opportunity to craft those into the lyrics, so I take that opportunity. But again, understanding that a lot of people won't 
care about it and also being content with that. You know, I don't think it's important that every person should pay careful attention to my lyrics. It's not the be-all, end-all. It's just my father's values. If the job's worth doing, it's worth doing well, and uh, and that's about it, really.
Natural Science, the finale from the original Permanent Waves album by Rush. A listener can get a, a holistic sense, or, or a Rush fan would get a sense of care has been taken here. That's next, when the final portion of our 40th anniversary celebration of Rush's Permanent Waves returns after this short break at Philadelphia's Classic Rock 102.9 MGK. Right now we'd like to do something for you from Permanent Waves. This is called Free Will. Thanks for celebrating with us for the 40th anniversary of Rush's Permanent Waves. I'm Tony Harris, and this is Classic Rock 102.9 MGK. What most people don't think about when a band sold millions of albums and tickets and won Grammys and been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the years they put in without big rewards or accolades. Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson take you back to the days leading up to Permanent Waves. I think we all had lifestyle changes at that time, you know. We weren't around a lot to enjoy the fruits of our success, and it was still pretty early in terms of really getting a sense of our success you know we were driving better cars then and, and we had all bought homes by then and, but we were still on the road a tremendous amount and when we weren't on the road we were writing a lot so we were really into being musicians and it kind of dominated every aspect of our lifestyle it was a very gradual build for those six years from 74 to 80 we worked really really hard as Getty said you know we barely got a chance to enjoy the fruits of our success so it wasn't like one day somebody else was screening fixing the screen door for us it was much more gradual uh there was an enormous debt that you know hung over our heads from touring and uh you know having the support of our management and you know, a lot of bills to pay at that time um so to, to be free and clear of all of those sort of things, that didn't really happen until really quite late in the 70s, 79.
force from the 40th anniversary edition of permanent waves free will before we bring down the curtain on this celebration let's get some last thoughts on rush neil peart a listener can get a, a holistic sense or, or a rush fan would get a sense of care has been taken here you know that's the bottom line that they know that when it comes even to the, the album cover or our t-shirts and tour books down to the music and the lyrics and the production every aspect of it we take personal care about and that's the message that i think however uh, disengaged the listener is from musical values or, or lyrical values, they still will know that care has been taken here. There's a sense of quality about all these things, at least, that even if it's never identified in a Rush fan's mind, I, I think they're certainly aware of that. Alex Lifeson. We've managed not to compromise, really, throughout our whole career. I mean, the way our deal reads, we, we're responsible for making a record, making a jacket, and delivering the whole thing to the record company. And they take it and they put it in the stores and hopefully push it so that they can sell lots and lots of them so that they can make their money back. This is the whole idea. It doesn't always work that way, but this is the idea. So we've always had the freedom to do what we've wanted. Now, that's easy to say when you can sell a million records 
and and not have to worry about pressure from the record company or pressure from management or or any of that outside pressure. But we've done something right, so we've just carried that on, doing it the way we think is right. Getty Lee. The one thing that I'm very thankful for in the span is that we embrace new ideas and we chase them and we run with them and we hope that they all work out. And it's not usually till a few years later where we look back and we go, you know, maybe that was not the best idea or it's interesting how that turned out or how uh, if I had to do that again, I probably would have done it differently. So we've allowed ourselves to make mistakes and uh, those mistakes are what you learn from and those mistakes also represent the amount of freedom we feel in this band. The four different configurations of Rush's Permanent Waves 40th Anniversary are available wherever you buy music. Read about them all at Rush.com. If you'd like to hear the show again, it's available with more music and interview as the Rush Permanent Waves 40th Anniversary All Access Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Rush Permanent Waves 40th Anniversary All Access was produced in New York, New Jersey, and Balakinwood, Pennsylvania by Near Perfect Productions for the UME Mercury Anthem Record Group. All rights reserved. No portion may be reproduced without the written permission of the producers. Special thanks to Ray Daniels and Meg Simzik and to Jamie Hartley of UME. I'm Tony Harris at Classic Rock 102.9 MGK. Thanks for listening.